Welcome again. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 23. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bibles, that should be on page 16, I believe. We'll be looking at chapter 23, 24, and then the first half or so of, of chapter 25 this morning. But we'll go ahead and read through Genesis 23 to begin our time. Sarah lived to be 127 years old, and she died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. And the Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham arose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. And he said to them, If you are willing, let me bury my dead. Then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, the son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. And Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of the people and he, of all the Hittites who had come to the gate. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. And again, Abraham bowed before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will, I will pay the price of the field, accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, listen to me, my Lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre Both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham and his property, in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. This is the word of the Lord. In his book, The End of the Christian Life, uh, J. Todd Billings has a section called Living Among the Dying. He writes this, For many generations around the world, humans have known life in the pit of darkness, that is, with death and dying all around us. Knowing the sight and smell and sound can give us a realistic sense of what it means to live as mortal creatures. Yet most who occupy the middle and upper classes of the Western world have attempted to purge their lives of any hint of death, pushing dying away from daily life in a way that would have seemed bizarre to earlier eras. For example, we now call the living room was in previous generations the parlor. It was a place of shared family life together. This was the same place in which children nursed parents and grandparents through the process of dying. In this way, family members lived and died in the same room, in the parlor. But today we know the parlor 
as that space exclusive to funeral homes. The funeral parlor is that awkward place where you visit the dead. It's outfitted to look like a living room with the overstuffed furniture and the fern stands and the knickknacks and, of course, the dead. But did you know that in the 1940s, most Americans died in their homes? But by 1980, only 17% died in their homes. You see, for many in an earlier time, caring for the dying was part of the job description of being a child, and it took place in the family parlor. Today, in contrast, we sequestered the dying into sanitized hospital rooms or nursing homes, and we've done our best to shield our children from the harsh realities of death. It's all part of this state of mind in which we think, if I can rid myself of the odor of death, maybe I can live as if death is not intertwined with my everyday life, my every moment of living. As you may have noticed that uh, in, in this modern Western world, almost no topic is off limits. I mean, there's conversations on news stations about sexual issues and relationships, which would have just caused the skin to peel back on previous generations. And you don't hear much talk about death. Oftentimes, we summarize it in those three little letters, rest in peace, for fear of engaging in a discussion, a meditation about death. And yet, death comes for us all. You see, the English Puritans were not the first ones who engaged in the writing on the Ars Moriendi, or the art of dying. It was actually an entire literary genre that started back in the Middle Ages. And the reason for the genre was because death was a part of life, a common thing. Death continues to be one of those things that's dealt with, but not dealt with. We talk about it in the positive way. Hospitals change it from dying to a failure to thrive, right? Uh, just this past week, Jeff Bezos, you know, con oftentimes contender for the world's richest man, he invested in yet another lab. This is not the first one, but an yet another lab who is looking to extend human life. Apparently, again, he and other such billionaires are investing in many of those projects. So death then is this thing which haunts us, though we dare not talk about it. And it's a thing that billionaires will spend their money trying to avoid, but it is unavoidable. And this morning, as we look at Genesis 23, 24, and 25, uh, we have not quite what the movie says, four weddings and a funeral, but rather two funerals and a wedding. Because we will deal first with the death of Sarah, and then the wedding of Isaac, and then the death of Abraham. And I believe sandwiched between this account of the, the matriarch and the patriarch of promise dying and the wedding of the son of promise, the seed who will carry out the promise, is an important thing for us to consider. And that is that God's people are to live each day in preparation for their death. God's people are to live each day in preparation for their death. So we will look at these couple chapters under these points here. We have procuring a plot, securing the seed, and being a blessing. So, first, procuring a plot. Because of our modern aversion to death, this chapter dealing with death can maybe strike us as odd. Why would you even have this in the Bible? Uh, it doesn't seem to flow with anything else. It's him kind of buying a funeral plot. And when you think about it, it's not actually really about Sarah's death. Her death is quickly recorded and done. It's, it's about the burial process. It's about him securing a place for her to be buried, a burial plot, as it were. Well, that's what should strike us if we weren't weird. There's this book I'm listening to right now. It's this great big monstrosity of sociology, but it says that we're all weird. We're Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Uh, and it's just saying how 
we think about the world so much differently than anyone who's come before us and is not Western and educated, industrials, and so forth. And one of those areas where this really comes forward is we read this like, oh yeah, you know, find the closest place to just kind of bury his wife. But that would have been remarkable to many, many other generations and still people today. Because you bury your dead in your homeland. You, you bury them where they grew and lived. And maybe you've gotten away from there, but you go back and that's where you, you plant them in the ground, as it were. Maybe the earliest account of this is uh, Thucydides and his ancient Greek account of the Peloponnesian War. And he writes of bringing the soldiers, the dead, back from the battlefield to bury them in Greece. But here, even though Abraham is a sojourner, a stranger, he makes plans to bury her in their new homeland, the, the promised land. See, he's already been told that he himself is not really going to inherit this land. Uh, that This is going to be one of those things that 400 years they're going to sojourn yet again in another country before they come back and, and take over this land. But in faith, he makes preparations for death. And actually, this very tomb will be the one where Sarah lays, and then him, and then his son and grandson as well. So the storytelling of this chapter is wonderful. There's this brilliant little pseudo-deference going on in the kind of negotiating scene that you see with the Hittites, where they begin this, you know, oh, take any fields you want. And they probably would have gone for it, but they probably would have gotten him back some other way. And he is unwavering. Abraham is pictured as this just man of grace, and he's constantly bowing and, and just being very deferential. And eventually he purchases this field for 400 shekels. Now, we're not totally sure uh, if that's a fair price or not, um, because the shekel wasn't always worth the same thing. But it seems like it might have been rather extraordinary, uh, because later David would purchase the temple site for 50 shekels in 2 Samuel 24. Uh, so again, maybe they're not using the same, the same amount, but it seems like it's a rather extraordinary price. And Abraham then purchases this land. Now notice, God had promised he would inherit this land, and yet he has to purchase the only plot of it which he will own in his life and his grandkids' lives as well until his great, 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 great grandkids after the conquest. Well, in the flow of Genesis as a book, uh, this is a pattern that we find in these three chapters that we'll consider this morning, and it's going to be repeated in Isaac and Jacob's lives as well. Is that Genesis tells the story of these patriarchs as first the death and burial of their wives, and then there's the marriage of their sons, the list of their descendants, and then the burial of the patriarch. This is the same pattern we'll see played out again with Jacob and then, and, and then with Isaac as, as well, or, or with Isaac and then Jacob and, and so forth. Which is to say that what we see in this burial scene is that the curse of Genesis 5 continues, and he died, and she died. Death continues. That there is, There's no stopping it. But sadly... In our frenetic and kind of frantic age in which we live, planning for death can be one of those things that we put off and put off. We don't do as Abraham has done. Now, he probably hasn't purchased a plot earlier than this is because he was called to live as a sojourner, but now he's decided it was time, and he made up his mind. He settled. He, I want that cave. Notice he showed up and didn't say, give me any cave. I want that field in that cave. I'll pay whatever the cost. I want that one. He's settled in his decision. Well, that's important because we live in a world with an obscene number of options, and the amount of options we have is actually not good for us. Uh, a wonderful book I'd commend to any of you is, it's called Them by Nebraska Senator uh, Ben Sass. Ben Sass is a strong Christian, and he wrestles with a number, of, a number of important topics in that book. 
But he has a title, cha uh, 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 chapter titled, By a Cemetery Plot. And in that chapter, he tells of the research which has been going on showing that this multiple uh, options that we have being bad for us. He writes this, contrary to what our consumer culture tells us, there are significant costs to having so many choices. Every person reading this book is fantastically rich by historical standards, and new research is showing that, surprisingly, having too many options actually diminishes happiness instead of promoting it. And he goes on to quote this study saying that a number of, as the number of options increase, the cost and time and effort of gathering the needed information to make a good choice also increases. And so the level of certainty that people have about their choices decreases. And the anticipation that they will regret their choice increases. This is the simple phrase, buyer's remorse. Uh, I bet if you went back to when there was only one option, you didn't have buyer's remorse because there was only one option. And so he gives an example. He says, today, if you ask almost anybody, would you rather go to an ice cream parlor that has 400 flavors or three? We would all say 400. We want more options, or the vast majority of us would. He says, but the problem is, is that the people who choose the way more options end up feeling significantly less happy afterwards because they worry they chose poorly. Whereas the person who goes to the three options, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry, chocolate is enough. And they're way happier. Now, for me, maybe vanilla is enough, but regardless, less options settles you. See, we've been programmed to think that more is better and more options are better. Uh, this is called maximizers, that we like to maximize our thoughts and our time. And all that time we spend not deciding is just drilling into your soul an uneasiness, a weariness, a worry, as it were. So he, here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. Abraham made up his mind. It was simple. He made a choice. I want that field. I'll pay the price. I'm settled. I'm not going to negotiate. I'm not going to navigate. I'm not going to go look elsewhere. That's just where I'm at. And so practically speaking, very, very practically, friends, I wonder how many of you have settled your funeral plot. Have you started even that conversation? Have you purchased that plot? Have you decided this is where I'm going to be? Because here's what Ben Sass gets at in that chapter saying, I don't know whether or not I'm actually going to be buried in Nebraska where we purchased, my wife and I purchased our plots. He says, but by having those plots, it means I don't have to think about it. There are no more options. I'm not worrying about that. Uh, who knows what the Lord will do? He might lay me anywhere else to rest, but I have them there, and that's one decision I don't have to think about anymore. So Christians, I want to encourage us to not get sucked up in the, in the anti-commitment age. Settle down. Oh, sure, maybe a job will push you somewhere else or call you elsewhere in life. But the endless job board surfing, car and house upgrading, the daily Amazon delivery, deliveries, friends, they all lead to some extent of us being a little bit more on edge and dissatisfied and looking for the, the BBD, the bigger, better deal, as it's been called, right? So one way to do that, friends, is to commit to a local church. I already mentioned we're doing a membership class right afterwards, and I, I don't say this again to say you need to be a member here, but to say is commit somewhere. Settle the issue. Uh, if this isn't the best place for you, praise God. I, I can recommend others or encourage you to find a place, but don't float. By floating, by not being committed, by not being tied down, you're creating an unnecessary anxiety for yourself. And besides, the, the Christian walk is a patient plodding together. That's why there's so many one another commands in the New Testament. There's it's the Greek word alelon, one another. 
It's used some six times in the Gospels specifically for commands, and about 52 times between, Revelation, or between Romans and Revelation. And in each passage, Christians are called to do for one another. And if you study those passages, it's, it's basically a roadmap for the Christian life. That's how we live together. And historically, the way that is done down through the ages has been to commit to a local church and one another with that body, binding ourselves to these Christians. So friends, to put it as blunt as I can, my sanctification and growth as a Christian and even as a pastor is bound up with the members of this church. And your sanctification and growth is bound up with the other members of this church because we covenant together to walk this walk out together. So by purchasing the plot, burying the matriarch there, Abraham has locked himself in. He's committed, as we'll see. Again, his son and grandson's bones will be carried back there. He refuses to be unanchored. So I'd encourage us to be anchored. The second point of application also, I think, flows from this, is that I imagine for a number of our senior saints, you've already settled this issue. Uh, you have worked through these things to a greater or lesser extent and have plans with your kids. But how about for maybe the younger of us? Have we started thinking about that? That we're really living today for another day. Uh, that, that this life is just the blip on the radar. That's what these chapters are showing us. That Yes, there'll be weddings and funerals in life. But life is always aiming at the next life. Or if the Lord tarries and we should go to death first, then that's what we're aiming at. Do you have those kinds of conversations? Or have we sequestered death away? Is it something we don't think about and we don't talk about, we don't consider? Now, some of you, because of life circumstances, maybe you've been forced into this. For Jess and I, her being diagnosed with a terminal illness, you know, a couple years into our marriage, we were forced to have this conversation. Uh, and I would just encourage you, if you're not forced, start to think about these things. Teach your children that uh, tomorrow and tomorrow's video games uh, or the next weekend is not all there is in life. That we are heading somewhere else. And yet, as we settle and be rooted and, and seek to commit ourselves to a church and a job and a house, we also do so, as Christians have said for years, Deo Valente, Lord willing. Or as James says, eh, who knows? The Lord might move us on. But commit and plan and work through these things. Commit to a house and to get to know those neighbors. Commit to a job and those co-workers. Commit to a church, building deep, lasting relationships. Commit to that church's Bible study, growing together with those people. And then, Lord willing, we'll have you commit to a community group soon to, to build tight relationships with a subset of the church. Of course, the Lord may well call us on, but let's commit and live as though this is where we will be until the Lord pushes us and moves us on. I think this is one reason why Christians have been poor at evangelism. Our constant tendency to go somewhere else keeps us from thinking that that person at the, the barber shop or the grocery store is really going to matter because, well, I might not be there or they might not be here in a week. Now get to know them. Be intentional. Try to go to the same grocery store and try to walk in the same line and, and repeat patterns to, to build in habits. This is our mission field. These are the people we're called to live life among. So like Abraham, maybe be those who buy burial plots, who root and seek to engage, who have a relationship with, with the people in the area just as he did here. Well, Abraham has settled his family's burial plot, and now we see that he's going to secure the seed. Look at Genesis 24, 1 through 27. <clears throat> Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. 
He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me into this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. And he set out from Aram and Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. And he had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town, and it was toward the evening, the time women go out to draw water. And he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today. And show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the town people are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, Please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, Drink, and I will water your camels too. Let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder, and she was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. And the woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up again. And the servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. And then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room at your father's house for us to spend the night? And she answered him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. And the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. <clears throat> the story goes on. This is actually the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And partially because once, uh, uh, once the servant makes his way to her family's house, he repeats most of what we just read. But as part of the preparation for his death, Abraham calls his chief servant to come to him and to swear an oath. And if you didn't catch it, the oath, the number one thing of importance to Abraham is Isaac not leave the land and that he does not have a wife from Canaan, but a wife from where Abraham came from. So that's kind of the, the, the structure of the oath there. And he says, put your hand under my thigh. Now, that's an interesting little way to do an oath and probably not one we'd do today. Uh, in the ancient world, doing that was connected to the idea of the thigh and the genitals. It was to swear on the seed, as it were. So he's kind of binding him by oath, saying, you're swearing on God's promise to seed that, that this is, you're going to fulfill this oath because my whole seed depends on this, you could say. 
Well, Lord willing, we'll see how this important scene of sending away for a wife will play out uh, in the rest of the patriarchs as well. But notice, Abraham's very clear, do not get a wife from here. The Lord is going to give you victory, he's going to give you success, he's going to bring a wife back, but, but do not take Isaac there and do not find a wife from here. But if she refuses to come, you know, you're, you're free. This is a pattern that will play out in the Mosaic law as well, where they must not intermarry with the rest of the people. And when they fail to do so, it leads to judgment almost every time. It's a particularly interesting study to actually see the changes to the New Testament, how no longer is tribal marriage required because God's people are no longer tribal. See, in the, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, we read that no longer will one covenant member say to another, know the Lord, for they all know me. So you see, in the new covenant, the command about not marrying someone from the same tribe is no longer in place. Rather, Christians are to marry Christians. Uh, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 9.5, that we are allowed to take a believing wife. And 2 Corinthians 6.14 deals with this principle of, of not being unequally yoked. But in other words, there's a move which takes place. In the Old Testament, it was about keeping the line pure, about not intermarrying. So much so, it starts with Abraham, and it's going to play out again with Isaac, sending him away. And you're going to see that pattern. And then, next thing you know, they get down to Egypt, and now they marry within the tribes themselves to keep the tribes pure. But that change in the New Testament is interesting. It's stark. And the reason being is simple, because as we've said a number of times, it's no longer who you are born into, it's who you believe into. That's why the New Testament doesn't place any emphasis on the continuation of tribes and things. God's people are defined about what they believe about Jesus, not who your dad or granddad or great-granddad were anymore. But in our text, Abraham is insistent that he go and send, send away to get this bride from elsewhere. And so he sends this servant. Now notice the servant took 10 camels. Now what's stunning is we've talked about the distance of this journey. This journey may have taken as much as three years because Sarah died when Isaac was 37 and he, when he returns with Rebekah, he's 40. Now, we don't, we don't know that the servant left immediately after, but this is a long trip. So he has 10 camels with the dowry and with food and resources he needs to make his way over there. And knowing that is rather stunning for what it shows us about what she did. Because when she draws water until your camels are satisfied, a camel can drink like 25 gallons of water. So, I mean, she's drawing an incredible amount of water. That's a lot of labor. So I think that's why you get the picture of, and he sat there and waited to see, is she going to give up halfway through? I mean, that's a lot of camels. Uh, so I think that's what's going on. He's testing it a little bit. But that raises an interesting question. What are we to make of this prayer? Uh, are, is this how Christians are to pray? Are we to pray and see if, if, and look for a particular type of fulfillment? That happens a couple other times in Scripture. In Judges, we read of Gideon's fleece being wet or dry. How are we to pray? Are we to pray in that way? Lord, show me this, show me a clear sign. Well, first notice the servant's prayer isn't for anything miraculous. It's just kind of almost a test for her. Is, is she going to be the right kind of person? And Lord, yes, make your will clear through her actions. So while there's nothing intrinsically wrong with praying and asking God to make something clear for us, what we are told in the New Testament is that Jesus says, we end our prayers, Father, your will be done. Which is to say we relinquish our will. Or we, better, are asking our will to be aligned with God's will, that he would do that work in us. This is why Jesus will say in John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father will be glorified in the Son. 
Which is to say, to pray in Jesus' name or for Jesus' sake is to ask God to answer our prayers in such a way that God will be maximally glorified. That's what we're asking for. So again, it's, it's not wrong to pray for God to make things clear for us. Just as long as we say, Deo Valenti, your will be done. Make it clear and clear that you would be glorified in this situation, whatever that might be. Well, here, God works out through this prayer and through Rebecca's hospitality, and he makes it clear that this is the, the bride-to-be. The question will be the family. And so when she heads back in, it seems after he gives her the nose ring and the bracelets, she runs back home. And we, in the second part of the chapter we didn't read, we get an interesting insight into Laban. It says, he saw the gold. Uh, and we're going to learn that quite a bit about Laban later on, Lord willing, as we consider him. He's all about the gold. And so he, he immediately leaves the house as she comes back to, to figure out, who is this guy? You know, 10 camels and gold. What is this all about? And so uh, Laban comes out to, to welcome him back in. And he calls the servant in and he says, oh, let, let food be brought out and, you know, just Middle Eastern hospitality. But the servant will have none of it. He says, stop, I'm not going to eat anything until I explain why I'm here and what's going on. And so that's what he does. And he recounts the story and how Abraham has sent him to come and to, to find a wife for Isaac, his son. And so he puts it to them. And Laban and her father both respond, this clearly seems to be of the Lord, uh, this has to be from the Lord. And so yet again, for the third time in the passage, the servant bows in worship to the Lord, to Yahweh, the covenant Lord, who has not abandoned his kindness to his master, Abraham. It's this beautiful picture that you see of, of this servant and how he is so willing to do his master's bidding, and yet he's also in the process of doing his master's bidding, worshiping God. Now imagine for a second that... That's the way our prayer lives were to be. That at every step of the way, we would engage the Lord like the servant does. As you just read through Genesis chapter 24, multiple times, he just stops and he just falls on his face and worships. And he bows down and he, he praises God. I think this is what Paul is, is getting at when he tells the church in Thessalonica to pray without ceasing. Uh, if you've been watching the show, The Chosen at all, there, I love how it, it has Jesus at, at, at waking up and at going to sleep Father, King of the universe, and would you grant me sleep? And thank you for the sleep that you've granted me. It's at every step of the way, there's this grateful heart. And I wonder, how is that working out for us? How is our gratitude and relationship with God? Is it one of those things that just bubbles over in all parts of our life? One of my favorite movies, I grew up watching uh, many of the, the musicals and stuff, and, and I love Fiddler on the Roof, and I love how Tevye is just constantly always talking with God. Uh, it's a great example, a great picture of what this looks like. But friends, how about for us? What does our prayer life look like? See, one of the reasons that we have different prayers in the service is because the Bible has all those different categories. Sometimes they've been summarized with the acronym ACTS, and it stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Uh, so when we're doing a prayer of adoration or praise, we're focusing on who God is in himself. We're just adoring him, not asking anything of him. We're just adoring him. We're praising him for his goodness, for his eternality, for his holiness. And then see prayers of confession, we realize that we continue to sin. And so we continue to confess sin. As 1 John says, those who are faithful to confess their sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins. And in prayers of thanksgiving, we're focusing on what God has done. 
We, we thank him for, for what he's done in history and for what he's done in time for us. This is why historically people thanked God at every meal. Particularly, remember, in an ancient subsistence culture, every meal was a gift because uh, you might not have that many. And so there'd be a pause just to say, Lord, we know that this meal ultimately comes from you, that you are the provider. Uh, and then finally, supplication or petition. We bring our requests to God. We pray, Lord, would you lead? Would, would you make this clear? And yet we pray that you would do so according to your will. So we find all these categories of prayer in the scriptures, and so we should grow in all of these different categories to grow in ACTS. There's another one uh, that's been uh, used for years, but it hasn't got as much attention, and that's prayers of lament. Uh, you can go the whole book of Lamentations, but many of the Psalms, almost a third of them, uh, are prayers of lament. They're the songs that oftentimes start out, How long, O Lord? Songs of, of mourning, prayers of mourning. Uh, they're the prayers that I'm sure you've had when you've seen a loved one turn away from the Lord and maybe seem to for years be walking with the Lord and now they've abandoned him. How long, O Lord? They're the prayers that we pray when we thought back 20 years ago to 9-11. How long, O Lord, will the evil and the wicked continue? When Afghanistan fell and people are being tortured, how long, O Lord, will you wait? So he, friends, we, we need all these different kinds of prayers. Because as we pray these different prayers, we're, we're praising God, we're thanking Him, we're confessing our sins, we're bringing our petitions, we're lamenting the, the brokenness of this world, and in all of that, we're being changed. And that's what we see from this servant doing such a brilliant job of, at every step when something changes, he just acknowledges, Lord, this is good, this is from you. Well, the next morning, they, they finally have their meal, and the next morning, they wake up, and the servant gets ready to go. Now, this has been a long journey, potentially a year, year and a half, this long journey to get over here. He's like, we need to get back. And Laban, as we'll see, kind of the trickster, he decides to slow the whole thing down. Uh, in the Hebrew, the language is, is a, a little bit ambiguous. It says 10 days, I think, in our translation, but it could be as much as a year. He's just saying, oh, no, no, stay, stay, let's draw this out. But the servant will have none of it. And so finally, the father and Laban say, okay, it's up to Rebecca. It's up to her. And she says, yeah, I will go. And so she goes with, it says her nurse, um, Deborah, who will be important later in the story as well. But as the, chapter, as the chapter draws to a close, we find that she arrives finally at this great long journey, and she gets off and says, who's that? And, you know, that's Isaac, that's my master's son. So she puts a veil on, signifying that she's entering into the, the wedding ceremony. And then it says that Isaac took her into Sarah's tent. Now, for Westerners, that's probably pretty weird. We wonder what is going on with that. But what is being signified in the text is that now Rebecca is the matriarch. Sarah has died, and now Rebecca is the matriarch. And just as Hagar, and we're going to learn in a minute, Keturah, were other wives who had other kids, there was one patriarch and one matriarch. And the same thing goes now. We have Isaac and Rebecca. So with the seed secure and with the burial plot purchased and procured, now we come to the closing of Abraham's life and him being a blessing. Look at chapter 25, verses 1 through 11 with me. <clears throat> Abraham had taken another wife, whose name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan, and the descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letushites, and the Lumites. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephor and Hanak and Abida and Eldaah, and all these were the descendants of Keturah. 
Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from the son, uh, his son Isaac to the land in the east. And Abraham lived 175 years, and then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite. The field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. So we see this kind of bracketing. 23 began with the purchase of the field, and now we see Abraham's buried in the field, the, the death of the matriarch, the death of the patriarch. The point of the book of Genesis, again, as we've said, is to trace the line of the seed. And so clearly, that's why in the middle of these two deaths, we have the line of the seed of Isaac. Well, uh, one of the difficulties comes up, though, with this little discussion of Keturah is that we Westerners tend to be ri kind of rigidly chronological. But I think it's far better to understand verses 2 through 4 here of Keturah and those sons. That actually took place much earlier. That was even before Sarah died. Uh, this is not to say that after Sarah died, then Abraham in his re remaining 38 years of life, that, that that's, that is when he, uh, he had these other wives. No, that's not what's going on. Uh, we're actually going to see another out of order or anachronism take place in a little bit. Because we're going to see Abraham dies here, and yet Jacob and Esau... Uh, are born while Abraham is still alive. So again, notice what the author of Genesis is doing. He's putting things in a different order because he's driving at his point that the book is about the seed. The book is about the seed, driving us that way. So the reason for putting Keturah here in these little things is quite simply to show that Abraham was a blessing to many nations, just as God promised he would be. Uh, but then also it's to show that he'd be the father of many nations, which clearly he is. So that's why this is, little story is tacked on here. But with this story here, that raises the issue of polygamy, and we, we can't hide from this one. We have to deal with it. Many leading characters in the Old Testament were polygamous, uh, and particularly when you consider how clear the New Testament is, or the Old Testament is, rather, that God created Adam and Eve, and they were to leave and cleave. They were to be one man and one woman. So how is it that polygamy was tolerated? Because Jesus himself is going to go back to Adam and Eve and say this was the pattern for marriage. Well, what was going on? Well, there was all sorts of practical reasons why polygamy might have been helpful. Oftentimes it was used in a treaty. And this becomes the most uh, vivid and rather grotesque example of this is Solomon, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But the first time polygamy is introduced in the Bible is Lamech, if you remember. <laughs> Lamech was the one who said, I killed a man for insulting me, and he took two wives, it said. So uh, but beyond that, Deuteronomy 17 and 1 Kings 11 speak that polygamy was, was not good. And every single time God's people end up with more than one wife, it ends up causing them harm, as we saw with the story of Hagar. It, so it's the reason for so many of the troubles in David's life, and then for the downfall of the kingdom after Solomon's life. So polygamy may have had a lot of practical benefits, but that doesn't mean it's okay. Well, the question is, why did God tolerate it? I mean, why would he tolerate that? It's something clearly not tolerated today, but that's only true in the Western world. There's many other places in the world where polygamy still is tolerated. And it's, again, it's a very pragmatic reason. It's because a woman can have one child at a time, and it takes nine months to cook the bun in the oven, whereas a man can scatter his seed over and over and over again. Uh, so polygamy is still practiced in other parts of the world. It's, that's how you build a tribe. 
But the whole point of Genesis is God saying he's sovereign over the womb. And he's sovereign over the coming of the seed. And yet, many of the heroes of the Old Testament were polygamous. I think the best answer for this is quite simply to say that after the flood, God swore he wasn't going to wipe out the world anymore. So which meant God was going to have to use broken, sinful people to bring about his plan. And as I'm fond of saying, God is able to draw a straight line with a crooked stick, with all the crooked sticks, because they're all crooked, except for Jesus. Well, there's more we could say about polygamy, but I just want to make sure you're here. If you're visiting and maybe not a Christian, you realize the Bible doesn't commend it. It's not okay. It's very clear that that's not the case, but God uses sinful and broken people to call them to himself. Well, we get this brief account of Abraham's death here and his burial, and it's meant to highlight that he died well. He was blessed of God. And in the larger flow of the biblical story, God was using Abraham's preparations, the preparation for the death of his wife and of himself, to prepare the line of the seed, as we've said. God's people are to live in such a way as they prepare for death. That's basically what these three chapters are showing us. But as I opened, there's a whole genre of literature called the art of dying. And maybe one of the best books on this is by a man named William Perkins. He's sometimes called the father of Puritanism. He was born in 1558, and he lived a rather wild and drunken lifestyle until he was pretty radically converted. Uh, he was going to Cambridge College at the time, and uh, he heard a mother calling out and rebuking her child for something they were doing. And they said, don't you dare be like drunken Perkins. And he was so mortified, he was so embarrassed, that he gave up on his college uh, studies of mathematics and his, his intrigue in black magic, and he decided to go study theology. And William Perkins is often called the architect of English Puritanism. But it wasn't just England that was impacted, because some 100 Cambridge men who had studied under and been in the shadow of Perkins were some of the first to migrate over. And so it was often said in New England that the most quoted most respected and most influential of contemporary authors in the writing of sermons of early Massachusetts was William Perkins. Well, Perkins wrote this little book called A Treatise on Dying Well. And the book opens with a line that is hard for many of us to wrap our heads around. It says this, The death of the righteous, that is, of every believing and repentant sinner, is a most excellent blessing of God and brings with it Many worthy benefits. For a culture who doesn't think about death, that's a hard sentence to wrap your head around. The death of the righteous, of every believing and repentant sinner, is a most excellent blessing. Well, he goes on to explain how that can be. He says that only works if you're able to look at the grave with eyes of faith. If you're able to see that the grave is really just the door into eternal life. So what does preparation for death look like? Well, Perkins writes this, While we have time in this world, we must labor to be united to Christ so that we may be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We must show ourselves to be members of his body with the daily fruits of righteousness and repentance. So Christian, how does that work for you? What are the fruits of righteousness and repentance in your life looking like? Friend, I would submit to you, if you fear death, then maybe we should sit down and have a talk. Because the Apostle Paul was very clear. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, for a Christian, death should be welcomed as an old friend, if I'm allowed to quote a wonderful Harry Potter story. See, don't make 
wait to make preparations. Start now. You start in the relationships of, of confessing sin to each other, of, of doing life together, of seeking to show your union with Christ, as Perkins puts it so well. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I mean, you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus. How do you navigate death? It's coming for us all. How do you think about it? How do you make preparations? See, friends, I would challenge you, don't pretend like it's not going to happen. That is a very new phenomenon in our history, as we've said. Even back to 1940, when the vast majority of people died in the home, our sequestering of death has brought great harm on our ability to think about life and death, which is why Bezos can spend his billions, but death will still come. So if you're here this morning and you haven't thought much about death and what preparation for death looks like, I'd love to speak with you afterwards. I'll be standing back there. But this matter of Abraham's death is connected to the passage we read in John 8, and we'll close with this. Remember what Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Well, he's clearly not talking about physical death, because he himself experienced physical death. But rather, he's talking about there's another kind of death that we see in the Scriptures. And Perkins unpacks, he, he says there's three levels of death. Uh, but what he's getting at is eternal death, or what's sometimes called the second death. And that's why Abraham was able to rejoice in Jesus' day because he knew that the Messiah was going to come. And just as Abraham had faith that somehow God was going to bring Isaac back, as we saw a couple weeks ago, that somehow death itself would be undone. And so, friends, I would submit to you, make preparations for death. But realize that all the preparations in the world mean nothing unless Jesus prepared first. As he theologians uh, call the agreement between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the covenant of redemption. And the idea behind it is, is that eternity passed before creation. The Father and the Son agreed together to create a people and to send the Son to live and die for his people. And so that covenant of redemption is worked out in time. So Jesus was preparing for his death long before he made human life. Or as C.S. Lewis has addressed this subject, maybe better than anyone in his children's books on the Chronicles of Narnia, he puts it so well at the end of the last battle. Maybe you remember the scene. He explains finally how they've died and they've gone away. And he says, when you've been there a long time, you will start to realize that you've only experienced the, the, the cover and the title page of the greatest story ever told, which goes on forever and ever. And every chapter is better than the one before. And he tells it in the beautiful words before that of the eternal life is one of going further in and further up. So friends, we prepare for death now by going further in and further up near our Savior in resting and trusting in Him in working out our union with Christ. There'll be weddings and there'll be funerals. There'll be births and there'll be deaths. And along that road, how are we preparing to be closer to our Savior? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it deals with all of life, even matters pertaining to death. And we pray that we would be a people who are ready for death. Or as we read, we'd be a people who are ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us because for those who have repented and turned to Jesus, Lord, death is not the end, but merely the beginning. So we thank you for this reminder from your word. Would you use it to shape our lives, our thoughts, and our preparations this week? For Jesus' sake, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?